we're discussing the Sicha Chelik Yudzayin Parshas Bahar. The Sicha is a Chakira, which is an, a term for a Talmudic analysis. A fantastic way of Torah study, which is done often in yeshivas, and a higher level of study is to analyze Jewish law and to pick apart what is the real uh, ruling and the reasoning behind the law. It's the same law, but is the reason A or is it B? And why is that relevant? First of all, because it's a study of Torah to understand what's behind the mitzvahs and the laws. But B, it often makes a difference practically if we, we if we side with one side of the analysis or the other. So the Sicha introduces a Chakira, a famous Chakira, which is often used in Talmudic study called Gavra and Chefza. Gavra means person, man, Chefza means object. The Aramaic terms, Gavra is the Hebrew word Gever, which means man, but you add a, Aramaic if you want to know how a word is pronounced. Often it's the Hebrew word plus a vowel. So Gavra or Gever means that this mitzvah is about the person. It's an obligation on the person. Chefza or Chefetz is the obligation is on the object. Now, what does that mean? Isn't every mitzvah an obligation on a person? What does it mean that we're deciding, we're analyzing, is the uh, obligation on the person or the object? So the explanation is given that, for example, um, let's take an example. If there's a mitzvah in Torah, that you have to fence your flat roof. Is that a mitzvah? That if you, if a Jew owns a flat roof, he must make sure it's fenced. So the roof must be fenced. Or no, he must put up a fence. Is the mitzvah that it should be done or that he should do it, so to speak. And the difference would be, what if I move into a new home and it happens to already have a fence? So if it's about the roof being fenced, that would be chefza, object. The roof needs to be fenced. I don't need to fence it if it's fenced, done. Conversely, no, if there's a mitzvah to fence your roof, I got to take it down and put it back up. So the general understanding is that that mitzvah is chefza. The Torah says the reason for the fence is that no one should fall. So there's a fence, no one's going to fall. Uh, but that's an example. I'm just giving an example. This is not in the sicha. Uh, the whole first section here is not in the sicha, but I'm just giving an example. Another example would be uh, on the other side, tefillin. The mitzvah is to put on tefillin. It's not a mitzvah that tefillin should be sitting there or tefillin should be on you, but they should put them on. Now, some of you might remember a sicha in the past where we discussed that that itself might be a difference between the arm tefillin and the head tefillin. At the arm tefillin, the Torah uses the language of doing it. You should bind it. So the mitzvah is gavra, do it. Whereas the head tefillin, that's the arm tefillin. The head tefillin, the mitzvah, the language is it shall be. Sitting on your head, it's more about a fact that it should be. So perhaps that might be similar to this chakira. Um, another example is shechita. It's not a mitzvah that you must shecht. I've never shechted in my life. I don't think I ever will. A, I'm not a shechit. And why should I shecht? I can buy the meat that you shechted, or I can live a life without meat. So there's no mitzvah, the Torah, thou shalt shecht. The mitzvah is meat that you eat must be shechted. And there are many, many other such examples. So this becomes the yin and the yang, the gavra and chefza, object versus man. And in each case, there is a difference in halacha, which side you take. The example that I'm putting with a question mark is mezuzah, because it can be seen both ways. Is it a mitzvah? that my home must have a mezuzah, or that I must put up a mezuzah. And what would be the difference? I move into a home that already has mezuzahs. 
So if it's about the home having mezuzahs, I leave it there, I'm good. But if it's, I must put up mezuzahs, then I got to take them down and put them back up and now make a bracha because I am doing the mitzvah of placing a mezuzah. These are some of the examples, just throwing them randomly to present the theory and the concept of this analysis. The Rebbe comes and talks about this in the case of Shemitah. That's what the Sikha is about. Shemitah sabbatical year, rules, you can't plow the field. You got to leave it fallow, barren all year, leave it alone, give it a rest, give yourself a rest. <coughs> so the question is, it's the Rebbe's question, and it's also discussed in other, you know, earlier uh, commentaries. The Rebbe brings the famous work of the Menchaz Chinuch, who was famous for his work in Chakiris, in an analyzing Jewish law, fascinating good work that I discussed, uh, learned a little bit of in my years in Yeshiva. So the, the question is, is the mitzvah, Torah says, on the sabbatical year, the field cannot be worked. However, what is the mitzvah? Is the mitzvah the field has to lay, uh, be left alone and given a rest, or you cannot work it? What will be the difference between these two sides? The practical difference would be, what if a non-Jew does it? If the mitzvah is the field has to be left to rest, the non-Jew can't do it either either on my, on my behalf or, on, or for his own benefit. Doesn't matter. It's not even a, a Jewish restriction. A Jewish field must lay rest for that year. But if we say, no, it's a commandment on the Jew, the Jew is not allowed to uh, do work in the field for that year, just like a Jew can't do work on Shabbos. The non-Jew can come in and plow the field. Obviously, there might be questions. Can he do it on behalf of the Jew? That becomes already more complicated, like Shabbos or Goy is not allowed to do on behalf of a Jew, but that's a rabbinic prohibition. But in the letter of the law, the guy can plow the field. Certainly, he's doing it for his own benefit. So this becomes the two sides of that analysis. Um, and the Rebbe further says in a footnote that uh, these two sides will line up with two reasons given by the Rambam himself for this mitzvah. In the book of Marina Nebuchadnezzar, Guide to the Perplex, he says the reason for the mitzvah is to allow the field a time to replenish. So that means it's about the field. But elsewhere, Rambam says, I believe in Sefer Ayad, in his main magnum opus in the Mishnah Torah, that the reason for the mitzvah is to to establish in our hearts, to remember the fact that God created the world from nothing. And therefore, just like there's a seven-day cycle, a seven-year cycle, where we cease to, to, to work and, and take control of our destiny. And therefore, it's a gavra thing. It's not about the field, it's about me. Ramam says both, but the bottom line is, what does it come out to be? What, which one is prevalent between them? Uh, it's interesting that the Rebbe quotes different psukim, the verses in the Torah itself, which take both sides. There's a verse that speaks to the field. The language is, um, on the seventh year, you should leave it alone, or it shall be left alone. It's speaking about the field. Converse is another verse which says, that in the work of plowing and, 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 and etc., sowing the field, you shall rest. So it's talking to the person. So which one is it? That's the first analysis. To my understanding, the Rebbe doesn't revisit this. In the end, the Rebbe doesn't answer one way or the other. But the Rebbe introduces a second and a third chakira. And the third Chakira, the Rabbi, gives a clear 
resolution to, as we'll see based on sources. And the second and third are very similar. So the Rebbe therefore says, once we've solved the third, we can solve the second. To my understanding, though, the first Chakira is not revisited. I could be wrong, but it certainly doesn't say it explicitly in the Sicha of dealing with the first Chakira. Okay, Chakira number two. What about the produce on that sabbatical year? The rule is it's supposed to be free for all. In Hebrew, hefker. It's a separate mitzvah from the first one. The first chakira is that you're not allowed to do the work. A second one is that produce that grows on its own, stuff could grow on its own. Certainly trees, if you have orchards, you can have a whole full season of, or of trees, of fruits that grew on that year. You didn't violate the prohibition of work. The fruit grew. It is free for all. You cannot decide that it's yours. It belongs to any person who can come. Poor people, rich people, doesn't make a difference. You yourself can go in and take some, but it's not yours exclusively. The language is it's hefker. It belongs, it's free for all. That's Torah law. So the question is here, again, is this something that is on the object? You might say objective. Torah states that all these fruits are free for all. Or the Torah gives you a command to proclaim them free for all. They're not automatically free for all. The Torah says to you, I want you to make them hefker, to make them free for all. The difference between these two ways is, what if somebody decided to violate that mitzvah? But he violated it. It happens. And instead of, he, instead of proclaiming it free for all, he actually put up a fence and he locked it. And he put up a guard dog, whatever he did. He made it very clear that he's not making it free for all. The question is, is it in fact free for all or not? So if we say that the Torah states that the fruits of this year are free for all, and that's an objective fact, the object, the field, the fruits are free, it's a Torah proclamation. The same way Torah proclaimed that pig is treif, it's not subjective, it's not up to me proclaiming my pork treif, Pork is trafe. It's just a fact. Similarly, the Torah proclaimed, if you go by the column of Chetzer, let the field, the fruits that are yielded, the fruits that the field, that the orchards yield in the sabbatical year, they are not mine. They belong to the world. So then I can put up fences and I can put guard dogs. It said, good is healthy. It does not belong to me. And someone else can come and take it. And he's not a thief. However, if we say no, Torah didn't declare them free for all. It's not a status, the same way pork is trafe, this is free for all. The Torah gave me as a person a mitzvah to free them for all. And if I didn't, if I violated that mitzvah, we always have free choice, then you can't take it. You're a thief if you took it because it's not free for all because I haven't freed it for all. Fascinating. Chakira. And here too, there are verses in Torah which can be read in both directions. Uh, that one is that, you know, the fruits are, they belong, they're, they're free. Everyone can take them. And one is that you are told to leave it alone. Okay. So the Rebbe then moves on to the third Chakira, as said, which the Rebbe will give resolution to, and with that, try to resolve Chakira number two. And the third Chakira is also about the sabbatical year. There is a mitzvah to forgive any monetary debt. So if someone borrowed money from you, when the sabbatical year arrives, you're supposed to forgive it. You're not supposed to collect it. It's, you, you write it off on your books. 
I gave this class to my group in Port Washington, and there was a lot of questions about this. What does it mean? How can people just give up debts? And we talked about it. And, uh, and basically, the conversation is that, uh, look, a person is borrowing money because they're poor. And if they have no money to repay you, I guess Torah is saying, look, comes a sabbatical year. The same way the sabbatical year, it's like a reset. It's like Shabbos is for the week. The sabbatical year is for the agricultural seven-year cycle. Resetting, recognizing it's really all Hashem. And you can trust it. In fact, there's a, there are verses in the today's portion which discuss the sabbatical year. And it says, what if a person says, how am I going to eat? I can't, I can't do my work. It's like closing down your business for a whole year. We need to understand that back in the day, the idea of taking off a day's work each week was considered so ridiculous and so counterproductive. It's one of the arguments that Haman made to the king, that the people take off a day of work a week. The world's not going to function, he said. Today, it's commonplace that there's two days a week no one works. So Teda obviously broke its way through to society. But imagine telling people of one year, every seven-year cycle, they have to take a sabbatical. How am I going to survive? Close my business? But that's what the mitzvah is. And the Torah says in today's portion that the person is going to say, what will I eat on that year? And the Torah says, that's the mitzvah to have trust that Hashem will bless the field doubly on the prior year. So similarly, when it comes to reneging on, uh, to forgoing on debt, it's a way of saying, look, Hashem gave me a mitzvah, a it's a mitzvah to help a yid who's, who, who's less fortunate. And um, even a non-Jew, there's a mitzvah of tzedakah. And if the person, obviously the person should be a mentor and try to repay you. And obviously you try to put uh, some kind of guarantees in place. It's not a mitzvah to squander your money uh, uh, irresponsibly. But push come to shove. And he didn't pay you back. The mitzvah is to say, I, I, I'm done. I'm not going to come collect it. And it's free for all. In fact, there's a verse with, in Deuteronomy in the volume of the Parshas Re'e, when this is discussed again briefly, the Torah says a person is going to say, I'm not going to lend money to people because this sabbatical year is coming. It's coming up. And if I lend you money today and Shemitah starts in a month or in six months, I am going to say goodbye to my money. And the Torah says, don't do that. If someone comes and needs money, you must give him. The language is not so intimidating. You shall surely give him. Because and don't even feel bad because Hashem blessed you because of this kindness. This is the Jewish way. We help another yid. Obviously, this has to be done responsibly. You don't have to be a fool. If someone squanders his money time and again and again, you don't have to go back to to to, to be the guinea pig. But all things equal, if a yid needs help and you know that is doing his best and his good intentions, you need to help him time and again and again, even if the sabbatical year, the shemitah, is just around the corner. And trust in Hashem, and Hashem will repay you, or what have you. That's the system of uh, of Yiddishkeit. Just parenthetically, that uh, Hillel the Elder created a prisbul <clears throat> later on when he saw that people stopped lending money to one another. He, he he didn't like that. The language is that the doors should not close in front of borrowers, which is a big problem. And my understanding is that Hillel did this especially when he saw that borrowing became a way of making a living. It wasn't just to help some unfortunate guy who was down on his luck, but it became a way of making a living. Jews used money to make money. And if people are afraid to lend, the language is, Tino Delis, we're going to close down the economy. No one's going to lend money to somebody. And it's a big problem. 
And therefore, he instituted certain laws, including the famous laws allowing a person to take interest in those cases when it's not a loan, the nature of which is that the guy needs to survive and buy bread for his kids. But rather, it's a loan that he needs to invest in business. So Hitler created the Heteriska, which is used till today by Jewish banks and by Jewish lenders, uh, but it's, a, it's when it's an investment. And similarly, Hillel created also the Prusba, which allows you to not forego on the loan when the sabbatical year comes because of a certain mechanism in place. Again, but that was a rabbinic law which came later and probably should be used only in certain cases and is for that reason, just putting that on, out there for full disclosure. But let's come back to the Sikha. So what is Chakira number three? That forgiving monetary debt is a mitzvah in the Torah. And here too, on the sabbatical year, here too, the question is, is it Chefza or is it Gavra? Does it mean that the moment the sabbatical year comes in, the Torah declares this debt gone? It's like it never happened. The same way I used the example earlier, the Torah says that pork is tray. Torah says the, the debt doesn't exist. Or no, the Torah says that the lender has a mitzvah not to demand it and forgive it. Not that it's automatically gone and non-existent. There's no lien. There is a lien. But the lender has a mitzvah not to collect it. What's the difference between these two ways? The difference is, for starters, may the borrower decide to repay it and may the lender accept it. See, if we say that the Torah declares the debt null and void. It's non-existent. So you cannot repay it. And you cannot accept it. If the borrower wants, he can give the lender a gift. And the lender, I guess, can accept a gift. Accepting gifts is not really a nice thing in Judaism. The verse says those who hate the gifts will, uh, will live. Plus, if, they, if the lender happens to be a rich guy and the borrower a poor guy, which is usually the case, why would the uh, rich guy want to take a gift from a poor guy? It would be inappropriate. How, because the Torah says it's chefza, it's object. It's objectively a fact. The object of this loan, this money, this lien is non-existent. It's washed away. Who said? The Torah says. It's as if the Torah repaid you. But if you say no, there is a lien. He borrowed money, he owes it. However, Torah says that the bar lender should not collect it. And therefore... There isn't an obligation on the borrower to repay it because the lender is not allowed to collect it. However, if he wants to repay it, it makes sense. It's not irrational. There is still a lien, maybe not on him as a person because there's no one to pay it to because the lender is not supposed to collect it. However, on his estate, there is still a lien. You can't make it go away. It's still an objective reality. If A takes $100 from his pocket and gives it to B, B's pocket still somehow has a lien of $100 back to A. You can't make that disappear. The balance sheet wouldn't make it go away. So it's a non-collectible debt. And therefore, if B decides to repay it, if the borrower decides to do the above the letter of the law, mitzvah, and repay it, as the Sikha describes the discussion, then B would then the then the, the lender would be allowed to accept it and the borrower would be allowed to give it. So that would become the difference between in Chakira 3. What is the halachic ruling? That not only can he decide, can the borrower decide to repay it and the lender can accept it, but Ruach the sages are pleased with this behavior. This is a whole long discussion. It's quoting from the Mishnah. 
I believe it's the Mishnah, that uh, if he comes and he wants to repay him, the lender should first refuse it and say, but I forgave. I declared it free. And the borrower should say, but still and all. And then the lender, if he chooses, has a right to accept it. They do a little dance. But once they've done that dance, he has a right to accept it. And in fact, the sages are pleased with the fact that the borrower repaid it, even though he didn't really have to. Says the Rebbe, so we see clearly from that halach ruling, it's a clear Mishnah, the last Mishnah, the tractate Shavis, which is what the Sikha is also, it's a seum on the tractate Shavis, a discussion on the last lines of the Mesechta of the tractate, which the Rebbe would often make. And, uh, and therefore, being that that's the ruling, clearly, Chakira 3, the answer is that it's Gavra, that it's an obligation on the person not to collect it. But it's not that the lien does not exist, it does. And therefore, the borrower could choose to repay it, and the lender could choose to accept it. And furthermore, as the Rebbe speaks in the Sicha, the language of that ruling is this, as described in the Mishnah is that he's repaying his debt. He's not giving a gift. He's not giving a bonus. He's repaying his debt because the debt still exists. There's still a lien in theory, even though there isn't uh, an onus on the person to repay it. And therefore, the person can choose to clear up that objective lien. Says the Rebbe then, in Jewish law and in literature, Jewish teachings, the two laws, namely two and three on our screen, namely the, the fact that produce in the sabbatical year is free for all. And the fact that monetary loans on the sabbatical year are, are freed, those two are written in Torah, juxtaposed one into the other. They're written as two, two sides of the same coin. And therefore, since the halacha states clearly in Chakira 3 that it's, that it's gavra, that it's the person and not the object, so perhaps it's pretty clear that in Chakira too, it's the same thing. And that way the Rebbe sort of settles that second Chakira. Again, Chakira 1, to my understanding, is not settled. I could be wrong. If I am, please let me know. Um, I, now, then the Rebbe comes along there's a lot in the Sikha. As I always say, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching the Sikha for, for beginner level and I'm not doing everything at all. But uh, the Rebbe has another piece in the Sikha that I'm going to share. The Rebbe says, take a look at the last Mishnah in the tractate of Erevin. And this is how the, tra the tractate finishes. If one repays a loan during the sabbatical year, the sages are pleased with it. If one borrows from a convert who then dies and repays the convert's children, the sages are pleased with it. If one commits to a sale of an object and fails to perform an act of acquisition, if he keeps his word, the sages are pleased with him. This is the end of the tractate. And it's interesting. It's, it's a nice way to end the tractate. It's poetic. Uh, it's showing three things that are similar. But of course, the Rebbe looks at everything in Torah as exact. What's the similarity between these three? So on the face of it, they're all beyond the letter of the law. Repaying a loan during a sabbatical year is beyond the letter of the law. Sages are pleased with it. If I borrow money from a, from a convert and I repay it to the children, children who were not Jewish, who were born to him when he wasn't Jewish and convert along with him. According to Jewish law, they are not really his children. They are his biological children, but they're not halakhically his children because a convert is a newborn. 
Comrade is a new soul. It's like a new person for good or for bad, I guess. And therefore, technically, you don't have to give the money to the junior comrade. However, if you do, the sages are pleased with you. Because at the end of the day, I guess the assumption is that the deceased, when you borrow money from the guy, you certainly owe him the money. He's gone. Wouldn't he want you to give it to his biological children? Even though you have a halachic loophole not to pay them, but he, he would prefer either. And the third one is, I made a commitment to sell somebody something. I promised someone I'm going to sell them my car. Whatever. In Jewish law, when is that commitment valid where I can't back out? Let's say it's an unusual car. There's only five models of it in the world. And uh, it's really important. And the man flew all the way from across the country to make that deal. And I say, sure, I'll give it to you. And then I say, no, I won't. When is it the point where of no return? In Jewish law, this is an important question because um, it's not about when I paid. I can pay later. I can pay before. That's not how a sale is finalized. A sale is finalized by doing an act of acquisition, what's called a Kenyan, and there are various acts of acquisition for different things. If you're selling property, it's giving the guy changing the lock. If the guy changes the lock or if the guy fences something or does something to fix the lamp. Uh, if it's a movable object, you have to lift it up. Or if you're selling something, you can give um, you can give them a handkerchief and it's an exchange. You give them the handkerchief and exchange, the buyer now owns the object, so to speak. It sounds like a formality, but it's really important because that's the cutoff point of when the sale is made. So for example, if I decide to sell you my, my Porsche that's parked outside and you really want it because it's a very unusual model, I said, sure, come over, it's done. And you come all the way to meet me. And I say, soul. And then that moment, there is a, there's a great storm and a tree smashes on the porch. Whose problem is it? Depends. If we didn't do a Kenyan, I just gave you my word, it's still my car. And you can go home and live happily ever after. But if I did give my Kenyan, you own that vehicle, even if we didn't pay any money. So. That becomes the cutoff point, the moment of the Kenyan. So here the question is this. I gave you a commitment that I'm going to sell you that Porsche or whatever it might be, but I did not make a Kenyan. And just as about I'm ready to give you the handkerchief for the, or the keys to the car, whatever might be considered a valid acquisition uh, for that particular object, I decided to change my mind. I said, you know what? I had second thoughts. I'd like to keep the car. It's a very nice car. And I, my daughter would love it. I'm keeping it. And according to Jewish law, I'm in my right. However, if I decide to say, you know what, even though I'm in my right, I'm going to keep my word, the sages are pleased with me. So again, that's also in line with the other two. They're all three beyond the letter of the law. But the Rebbe in his signature style says, it's got to be more than that. It can't just be three examples of the letter of the law. And notice, by the way, they're all three from different tractates, and the Rebbe's putting them together. Aren't there many other things that you can add to the list that are beyond the letter of the law? Like, why choose these three? The Rebbe always teaches us that things that are lumped together in Torah because they are similar, not just in a general way, but in a detailed way, in theme, in content. And the Rebbe explains it beautifully, based on what we concluded from the Sikh, that the, the, the idea of repaying a loan during the sabbatical year uh, is allowed and encouraged. Why? Because the fact that loans sh should not be collected is gavra and not chefza, it's because of the person is, is obligated not to collect it. Not that objectively there is no such loan, 
So now we can see the similarity in context and in content and theme between these three. In all three, there is no obligation on the person, but there's still an obligation in theory. There's some kind of lean on some level. And therefore, if you opt to honor that lean, the sages are pleased with you. And all three, therefore, fit neatly into the exact same column. Let's go down the list. I repay a loan to you. Now, according to the way the Rebbe concludes in the Sikha, the way it's understood, um, why is it recommended that I pay repay the loan if the Torah says I don't have to? And the answer is, you don't have to. There's no obligation on you. But no one says that the lien doesn't exist, theoretically, on your possessions. Didn't disappear, as I said before, from the balance sheet. It you There is such a debt. It's just that you don't owe it. Or maybe there's no one to pay it to because you can't collect. And therefore, if you clean that up, sages like it. There still is a chefza obligation, even though there is no gabra obligation. Similarly, I borrow from the convert. Of course, no, there's no one to collect it. The convert is, is dead. His children, I can look at them and say, well, who are you? According to Torah, you're not related to that person. So I can get away with it. But hello, let's be honest. To think that there is no lien on my property, I borrowed money from someone. What happened to that debt? It's hanging. It's left in the air. I'm getting away with it, but I can't really go to sleep and put my head on the pillow and say, I don't really owe anybody. There's no one to owe, but something is owed. And if I know that that person would prefer that it pay to so-and-so, especially if it's his children, biological children, shouldn't I do it? And therefore the sages are happy with it. Um, the same thing is if I make a commitment verbally to so the other person relied on this deal. And now I renege, even though I could get away with it, but to say that there is no lien whatsoever, the Rebbe in the Sikha goes through in detail and explains that each one is a little bit less of a lien than the prior one. I'm not going to bother doing that here. But uh, some theoretical, I gave it my word. You relied on it. So even though you can't enforce it, it doesn't mean that there isn't theoretically any type of onus on me to do the right thing. And therefore the sages are pleased. And that becomes the similarity between all three based on the conclusion the Sikha made earlier about the nature of the law that monetary loans are freed on the sabbatical year, namely that they are not in principle so, but actually because the person is obligated not to collect. I'm going to close with, with a lesson that I want to suggest from this Sikha. It's not in the Sikha. Sikha doesn't really have an express lesson. Why am I doing this? Because when I give a class in my Chabad house, which I did with the Sikha, the people always want to know what's the lesson. And so I'm giving this uh, at your own risk, take it or leave it. This is, this is uh, I think the concept is certainly true. The question is the application of it to this Sikha. That's, uh, that's my, own, my own suggestion. And that is that uh, the sabbatical year is very important. It's representative of the whole purpose of creation. Uh, the Rebbe says in the Sikha even that the sabbatical year is the seventh year, the seventh sphera, which is Malchus, which is the Shechina, which is the, the plan of creation to bring the Shechina down to the world, which is Mashiach. Basically, the purpose of can be it can be argued to be the what's the purpose of the world, of creation, of the Shechina, of the revelation of Hashem. 
What's the purpose of Tayyidah Mitzvah, namely, in other words? And there's two ways to look at it. We can look at it, Gavra or Chefza. We can look at it as the object. Hashem wants mitzvahs to be done. Or we can look at it, Gavra, the Hashem wants Yidin to do mitzvahs. Hashem wants Tzvillin to be worn, or He wants you to put on Tzvillin. Hashem wants Shabbos Licht to be lit, or He wants you to light a Shabbos Licht. The difference is huge. You might say the difference is between our relationship with our children or with our employees. With our employees, we want to get the job done. If you don't do it, I'll get someone else. I'll fire you. I'll get someone else. I don't really care about you. I care about the job getting done. Conversely, if it's our children, it's the exact opposite. I want my children to do the right thing because I want the right thing to be done or because I care about them. Clearly, it's about them if I'm a healthy parent. Similarly, with Hashem's relationship to us, even though we know Hashem wants wants the world to be elevated, but but he wants us to do it. Because as the Rebbe says in a circle that we learned a month and a half ago in Parshas Masai, I believe the whole idea of the ultimately it's about the Jewish people. It's about Hashem's light dwelling within the Neshamas of Yidin. In plain English, Hashem wants us. We are his children. He wants a he wants you to put on film. He wants you to light Shabbos. He wants you to make the bracha and daven and then eat kosher. It's not so much about the, he has this thing for kosher food. He has a thing for you because you are his child. The famous debate in the Zayar, which comes first, the Torah of the Jewish people, and ultimately Yisrael Kadmu. We come first in purpose. We are ultimately the whole purpose. In fact, the whole Torah was only written because of the Jewish people. It's like the king who created a brilliant manual, but only with his wisdom, but only why? Because he wanted his son who will be born to have that wisdom. And therefore, it gives us special responsibility and a special merit on a year to know that the mitzvah is about them, again, this is a truth that the Rebbe and Hasidus says many, many times. I'm just suggesting that this might be an interesting takeaway from this sicha, which brings home the message of Gavra being primary rather than Hefzah.